digging in the dirt. I'm digging in the dirt. This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, climate change, farming, gardening, and food. My guest today is regenerative farmer, author, and host of the popular No-Till Market Garden podcast, Jesse Frost. He farms at a farm in Kentucky with his wife, Hannah Crabtree, called Rough Draft Farmstead. He is here on Digging in the Dirt today to talk with me about his new book, The Living Soil Handbook, The No-Till Grower's Guide to Ecological Market Growing. I found his book to be a comprehensive guide to no-till growing of food, especially for those who would like to have a business selling what they grow at market. But it is crammed with highly useful insights and wisdom on how to grow nutritious food with regenerative no-till methods. I believe after reading this that it's a good resource for just about anyone looking to hone their growing skills, beginners, sophisticated gardeners, wannabe farmers, and especially the seasoned expert grower. I have to tell you that I learn something new and helpful from my garden every time I have a guest with the skills of someone like Jesse Frost. Welcome, Jesse. Thank you so much for having me. No problem at all. Congratulations on the new book. It's terrific. Knowing what I know about farmers, how the heck did you find time to write it? <laughs> <laughs> that is the trick, right? The, you know, it was a lot of very early mornings, uh, um, a very understanding wife who took on a lot of work on her own and uh, then some late afternoons. It was a lot, of, it's a lot of work, but uh, you know, I think when you want something done, you, you find the time. Uh, my dad used to say, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. And it's just that ability to, to find a slot for the stuff that you need and want to get done. Um, yeah, I had to cultivate that for a very long time, but it's, uh, that's, that's the approach. Well, you know what you're talking about. It looks like to me. Um, so the, the title of your book spurs my first question. What is ecological market growing? I've never heard that term quite like that. Right. So the idea between behind ecological market gardening is essentially trying to think of the whole system. So trying to think of the, not just what do I need to put into the soil to make the crop grow, but also what can I do in the environment around my gardens and in my gardens that will encourage the life that's going to help my food grow as well. So, um, you know, an example of that would be you're putting, we put out a lot of crops in the middle of the summer here in Kentucky and it's very hot. So they may suffer some stress and the stress may call in some bugs. A lot of times pests respond to weakened plants. So it's nice, even in really good soil, if you have that opportunity to have a good uh, ecology around your farm that can, you know, the birds can help you defend uh, your plants while they're getting established. So they're maybe picking off the pests or the caterpillars or whatever it is. So that ecology is not just a practical element, but it's also, you know, an environmental element. You need diversity is one of the most important things in nature. Um, you don't find monocultures anywhere. So um, that's, you know, that's, that's part of it is just cultivating all of it, all the whole, it. the whole, the whole system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's symbiosis, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so you say right up front that the living soil is centered around three basic principles. And it's, this is a key to your book is that disturb the soil as little as possible, keep it covered as much as possible, and keep it planted as much as possible. Let's flesh those three out a bit because through my conversations with the various experts like yourself that I have on the show, they seem to me to be pretty much solid truths. And we always tell people when they tell us they can't grow anything or they kill everything, it's because, because your soil sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and, you're, and, that's where, and that's where you're at, right? You're just, you're going to develop the soil so that things go well. 
Right. Those three basic principles kind of came to us from conservation agriculture. And, um, you know, this is this idea of just keeping the soil covered as much as possible. There are many uh, benefits to things like mulches, um, even plant cover, uh, cover crops. There's, there's innumerable benefits from water holding capacity, uh, you know, increasing carbon, uh, your soil carbon, your, your soil organic matter, um, adding nutrients to the soil, lots of really amazing benefits to keeping the soil covered. Um, keeping it planted as much as possible is also extremely beneficial. Uh, you know, carbon dioxide is, it's, you know, increasing in the atmosphere. So you want as much photosynthesis as possible to kind of store that to help store it. Um, the photosynthesis also brings all the microbes that you need, the beneficials, uh, and with those become, you know, you get your slightly larger microbes, your, your arthropods and all the, uh, stuff that eats the bacteria and fungi. And then you get larger stuff like earthworms and spiders that all come in, um, that are feeding on the roots, you know, from the roots, from the sunshine and water and carbon dioxide, photosynthesizing, um, plants into, you know, the plants are putting that into the soil. And so the microbe it's building microbial life and that, and then that's, and that's really beneficial to the soil. I mean, if you put a plant into living soil like that, that that's really true. That really drives it just keeping the the soil covered with plants at all times and then disturbing it as little as possible. Now of not trying to beat it up too much with a tiller. When you, when we till, we often release carbon that's locked up inside of soil aggregates. Soil aggregates are just created by microbes. They, they tend to wind sort of pack soil particles around pieces of carbon and that becomes a soil aggregate with a piece of carbon in it. But when you till, you break up that little piece of carbon and oxygen loving bacteria when they get all that oxygen whipped in there from the tiller, um, they go bonkers. They love that. And you've just given them both a bunch of food and a bunch of oxygen and said, you know, go for it. And so you want to do that as little as possible. There's, you know, not all disturbance is bad disturbance, right? Worms do really good disturbance. They roots do really good disturbance. And I think humans are capable of that same thing of the beneficial biological disturbance, but we have to be intentional with our disturbances. What are we doing and how is it getting our plants healthier? Folks, you know, this book is really comprehensive and Jesse's glossing over what he gets into. He gets into some real detail if you want it, you know, and we're going to have a short time together. So I appreciate that we're, we're touching on things so you can get a flavor of what's going on in his book. And the, the, he starts off basically talking about promoting soil life and incorporating biology in your early chapter. Why, why is this so important to have that basic science of living soil? Yeah, I think if you have an understanding of how photosynthesis works and really like how, you know, as a grower, the, you can affect photosynthesis or you can improve photosynthesis or conversely, you can hurt photosynthetic activity. That's what we do as growers is we manage photosynthesis. We manage the plant's ability to produce uh, fruit and to feed the soil and all of those things. And that all comes from transferring carbon dioxide, sunlight, and water into what we call root exudates, and that feeds the soil life. Those are just little uh, carbonaceous cocktails um, made of carbohydrates that are essentially feeding the soil. They're putting carbon into the soil. And, you know, the life is really important because that's where it goes. So the next step in the process is that all that carbon gets pushed into the soil and it needs something to eat it. It needs fungi and bacteria and archaea, et cetera, to consume some of those exudates. And then you need like all of those bigger organisms I kind of mentioned earlier, but you need a diversity of those and not all soils are immediately going to have them and not every year. So, you know, having cover crops is a great way to keep the soil covered over the winter time and feeding the, that microbial life. That microbial life is also bringing in nutrients and protecting the plant from various 
threats, whether it be other, you know, root eating microscopic organisms, or it could be something, um, you know, slightly bigger, it could be other plants, but they create, you know, the, the microbes that are enjoying those exudates are going to defend that, that food source. And so they, you want to bring in as much good beneficial life as you can, because that's, what's going to help keep your crops healthy. And they have every, like I said, they have every incentive to do that because that is a huge food source for them. And so, yeah, keeping, we do that in a number of ways, you know, in terms of adding biology, we compost is an excellent way to do that. Compost slurries. I'm really fond of just mixing it in with some water and dipping my plant roots into that before it goes into the soil. Hmm. Compost teas are great. The one that I just mentioned is really excellent because it's so effective. A lot of times we're spraying and that's can be kind of time consuming, but if you take a bottom watering tray, like we do big trays of, of plants and so, you know, we do thousands a week and essentially we dip that whole tray into a compost slurry and it's often vermicompost. So worm compost is my preferred. So we dip it into that, into just a mixture of water and, 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 uh, the vermicast. And then we kind of let it sit there for a minute and saturate the roots. And then we put those roots in the soil and the, the plant kind of immediately has a good, healthy organisms right at the root zone to start off with. And I think that's, you know, the, just thinking about the biology is really important. Yeah. You, so this all falls under the category of photosynthesis. Too. I don't think most people think of photosynthesis this way. And you, I'm sorry that you said in your book, you, if there's one thing that you'd like people to go away from your book is with a basic understanding of photosynthesis. So you listed composting all these all come under that category of photosynthesis yeah right it all it all plays in together so the reason i mentioned that about photosynthesis is it's kind of what i was touching on earlier but that we have a lot of control over it the more you know about photosynthesis and the more you understand how it works the more you can see when your plant is not photosynthesizing well and you can kind of address it uh-huh. you can start like an example of that is we just moved on to a new property and we had some poor drainage issues and I didn't know that at first, but the reason that I did know it, that I knew something was going on was that my plants weren't growing as fast as they normally do. And I've been growing for a long time. So I know generally how fast they're supposed to grow. And I started to kind of go through the checklist and I realized that it was the water logging of the roots. And when it does, when the roots water log, when it's too much, when the water's not moving out of the soil, the plant, it basically shuts its stomata. It's and those are little holes in the leaves that release water. And that's kind of creates a negative pressure generally that pulls water into the plant. And that's very important. If there's too much water at the roots, they sort of drown. They can't open their stomata well enough to get the nutrients and all the things that they need to come up from the soil. So just a basic understanding of photosynthesis can give you a really new perspective on gardening. We're talking to Jesse Frost. He's got a new book out. It's entitled The Living Soil Handbook, The No-Till Grower's Guide to Ecological Market Growing. And, you know, you, like I said, we have limited time, so we're going to bounce around here. But I think one good thing is to, if you could talk a little bit about no-till. I, you know, I personally made the transition a couple of years ago. I started having winter cover crops. And, and finally, the stuff <laughs> talking to you guys sunk into me and said, well, I'm going to try this stuff. And it works. You know, I mean, I'm really pleased with the results I'm getting. But you, you have a lot about tillage. So maybe you can define tillage for us and then talk a little bit about no-till. 
Yes. You know, in terms of when we think about what tillage is, we kind of have to go back historically to where it came from. And the word tillage originally derived from this idea of just preparing the soil for growing crops. And, you know, for indigenous cultures have been doing this throughout the world for thousands and thousands of years. And the idea was that, you know, they were using bone plows and small hand tools and things that were not going to open up a significant portion of the land. And they would grow their crops there or, you know, in a small area for a small amount of time for maybe a year or two, and then they would let that fallow. And then they would do something like Swidden agriculture, you know, uh, burning it down and then replanting it or something to that effect. Like they would find another way to get into that soil, or maybe they wouldn't for several years, they would let it kind of replenish. So that was like the original cover crop. And so that's what tillage was for a long time. It's just this idea of opening up a small piece of land. And then over time, you know, that started to, it started to change as the, as the tools started to change. And as the, um, you know, Europeans started to open up or Americans started to open up really large swaths of land with big tractors, especially in the West, where the soil wasn't meant to be turned. This is where we kind of end up at the Dust Bowl. So we end up at a, at a, seri- at a time in our history where millions of acres had been plowed. Um, we hit a, a record drought and that plowing caused all that soil to blow away and it blew into the sky. It suffocated animals. It, it went across our country, uh, it landed in New York city and it was an enormous, uh, catastrophe, environmental catastrophe. And as, and it hasn't really stopped. I mean, that's still going on to some extent in certain parts of the country, but it's not to the extent that it was in the Dust Bowl, but it is still significantly an issue. But the, you know, erosion in general, but that was wind erosion and that was really substantial. But as to, over time, that idea of tillage, of opening up the soil to, to grow food, it actually kind of started to take on those meanings. So now today, when we start thinking about tillage, we start thinking of these ideas of, of soil running down the Mississippi or dead zones or, you know, uh, wind erosion, so, you know, rain erosion, all of these different things that, that, like many words, um, tillage has kind of changed meaning over time. And that's kind of what it's become. And so when I think of what tillage is, I try to differentiate it from disturbance, right? Because disturbance can be beneficial. You know, those, those indigenous cultures who've done this for thousands of years, those minor disturbances have been shown to have really important biological effects on, you know, you can create a lot of diversity through a small amount of really intentional and smart disturbance. Hmm. So it's so to not conflate the two, tillage is something that causes long-term harm to the soil. Disturbance is something that can, if done wrong, and it can turn into tillage, but it's not inherently tillage. Disturbance can be uh, an, an example of what I'm talking about is if uh, on our new farm, we have areas that are very compacted. And so instead of just not doing anything, the best thing for photosynthetic activity is for me to lightly pop that soil with a fork, with a broad fork in particular, but just a light forking to get some airflow for gas exchange. Plants need gas exchange. Plants need microbes living and dying and breathing out carbon dioxide so that they can reabsorb it as part of the carbon cycle. Um, they need that gas exchange. So there's a lot of different things going on there and they can't have gas build up because there are microbes down there that may create ethanols and all sorts of things that could be toxic to plant roots. So they need that gas exchange. So in that case, that's a, that's a beneficial disturbance to the soil. That's a beneficial disturbance to the plants. That's not a necessarily a tillage. And I always advise people to not get too hung up on what is and is not tillage because that dogma can affect your growing, can limit you. If I went into this new farm with the compaction that I was having worried about tillage, worried about, you know, 
disturbing the soil at all, I would have really poor production with my plants. And effectively, I would have really poor photosynthesis. And when you have poor photosynthesis, you're not having the beneficial effects that you want from being a no-till grower, an, an ecological grower, somebody who wants to benefit their soil and grow food at the same time. And those two things are possible. I mean, indigenous cultures throughout history have proved that, that humans, it is not nature or humans, humans are a part of nature. And we have to really believe that and understand it to, to be successful. Sounds good to me. So basically what we're telling somebody who's got a garden, because a lot of people in the spring go, oh, I got to go turn my garden, right? And that's probably the biggest no-no, right? You have too much turning and you're killing everything that's in there and you're disrupting all that good organic matter that's left over from last year. Yeah, you may not necessarily have to. You can go out at it, uh, see what needs, you know, maybe there are parts of your garden that need a little bit more work than others. And maybe some parts of your garden, you go in there and you pull out the, you pull out whatever weeds are there. Um, and you maybe spread a little compost, uh, maybe rake it in lightly if you want to, but then just plant into that and see, you'll see a lot of benefits. Um, weeds can benefit the soil over the over the winter time. There are several weeds in our climate that actually have a lot of benefits that I've seen amazing root activity on purple nettle and and uh, chickweed and things like that, that actually that's doing benefit beneficial things to the soil over the winter. So if you can get to them before they start flowering in the spring, you can benefit from some of those from some of that activity. And um, I think, yeah, I think people really in you know, and this is inherent in humans that we really like the clean slate. We really like that mm -hmm. idea of there's a bunch of weeds out here. I'm going to till it up and make it perfectly clean. I'm going to shove the plants in there. It's so smooth and soft and fluffy. Um, and then they're going to grow fine. And we see that sometimes they grow fine, especially in the first few years, but that'll decline because you're ripping up a lot of that carbon and, and without putting it back, without keeping it you know, going at all times, you're, you're going to miss some of the benefits. And another one is, you know, there's a lot of effects of tillage, you know, you, you can have wind and rain erosion, of course, and you can have the sun can burn up your carbon, your, your soil organic matter. Um, but you also maybe lose your mycorrhizal fungi. And these are the fungi that are not your fruiting fungi. These are not, you, you know, they don't make mushrooms, but these are the ones that connect to plant roots and they dig deep into the soil and they can connect to different species of plants. I mean, they've shown this in many forests throughout the, uh, you know, throughout the world, having, you know, one mycorrhizal fungi is connected to several different species and it's communicating and it's trading nutrients. And it's like this little, this little internet, but you don't want to rip that up over and over again, because those are slow. They, they're not as fast to recover as other microbes. And you want to, if you can preserve that and then put some plants in the soil that it can hook onto and start feeding and start trading nutrients for, for uh, carbonaceous cocktails that we talked about earlier, the root exudates. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, all of those things. I, I like the, in the book, when you described the, the underground city of the soil, you know, with all these different denizens and different things going on <laughs> in the roads and communication devices, I, I thought that was really cool a way of describing it. Yeah. I mean, it, those analogies are really important. When you think about the soil as when you try to just dive into the science, that's, that can be the wrong approach because then it gets really convoluted really quickly. But when you start with an analogy such as the city, you know, thinking of the soil as a giant city with, you have infrastructure, you have all these pipes that carry water and carry electricity and you have uh, inhabitants and you have housing and you have all of these things. So when you run a tiller through there and you break it apart, it can reconstruct itself. Soil is absolutely regenerative. That's where that term comes from. But the 
you know, we, we, when you just rip it up, it has to do that work. And it takes a lot of energy to build a city. And so if every time you till, you just imagine trillions of little cities being destroyed, you will try and find different ways to go about it. And, you know, maybe you cause some damage here, there, just getting your soil back to where it needs to be and light and fluffy without tillage. But, you know, in the, the end goal, the, what you're aiming at is for it to be something that every year you can just kind of do a, a small amount of work. And I talk a lot, a lot of technical detail in the book, do a small amount of work to get it going again. And then you just keep going year after year and you never have to get that tiller out and you can do it mostly yeah. with hand tools. My experience is that's exactly what starts to happen in, in my small little patch. And you, so we, you know, we're talking about disturb the soil as little as possible and keep it planted as much as possible. And then we come to keep it covered as much as possible, which could be a cover crop, but it also could be mulch, which I've become a big fan of, of the mulch. I, when I leave suburbia, I always stop at my local farmer when I, and I pick up some hay and bring it down and mulch with hay. And I find it to be besides the fact that I'm weeding a lot less, I, I find it remarkable keeping the moisture in the soil and all that stuff. And you talk a lot about that. You know, mulching is a real big chapter for you. Yeah, I separated it into its own chapter for that reason, because it's 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 extremely important. I mean, there's so many benefits to mulching. There's yield benefits, there's there's biological benefits, there's uh, nutritional benefits. Hay, I think, is an interesting one. It can be difficult because of hay of weed seed, but it's the soil loves to eat grass. Right. I mean, it's, you know, it, 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 that's it really kind does. of what it's built for. And it, and so, and there's so many nutrients in grass. I mean, a lot of people don't realize the difference between hay and straw, straw being, you know, the, the, the stalks of grain and hay being the dried at the right time at its primo uh, nutrition hay, grass. And that's, there's a big difference there. The hay doesn't hit straw doesn't have the nutritional qualities that hay has, um, but figuring out how to use it in a way that's responsible without getting weed seed. I also discussed that in the book um, can be a challenge, but you know, like in your situation, Kevin, where you're probably mulching over top of it and then over top of it again and over top of it again, just to kind of keep those, any of the weed seeds buried, mm -hmm. that can be a really effective method, especially if you're doing a lot of transplants as, as opposed to doing a lot of direct seeding. Like we do a lot of carrots, so we can't always use hay, but I try and incorporate it as much as possible. Yeah. I, well, I, like I said, I use a cover crop um, in the winter, which I find really great in the winter to see the snow coming down there's green out there and then mm -hmm, you know because yeah. i i found a blend that like it was i think it's winter pea and jerry oats and hairy vetch and uh, a couple other things are in there you know in different percentages and so that comes back up after the winter and make it come grows about a foot tall and then i buzz it down with a weed whacker and then plant everything i have and then throw in some mulch and i'm happy i mean because i i've got other things to do besides you know really work at the garden you know i like to try to make it easy on myself and this this little method i came up with uh, it rings true to what you're saying in the book i love that i mean that's such a simple technique and you probably get great crops out of that and that cover crop is sitting there feeding your soil getting it prepped and it's adding nutrients right i mean you have yeah, a legume in I'm there and it's adding, you know, it's giving you some some nitrogen to that your plants will be able to access a little bit later on. And um, that's great. I mean, that's those are that's so valuable and so simple. What are some of the other mulches just briefly? Well, compost is the one we haven't really talked too much about. Compost yeah, is often that. used as a mulch. Um, and that's a you know, that's a that's a that's one a little bit. It's a little bit more complicated uh, because there's different kinds of mulch. And I discussed the four different kinds of mulch in uh, of compost rather in the book. So there's four different types, fertilizing, uh, nutritional, inoculating and mulching. And though I break that down in different ways for specifically for this reason, because the, you know, if you're going to use one as a mulch, you need it to not be the wrong one. 
because some are so high nitrogen, uh, for instance, a fertilizing compost, I'm referring to like chicken manures and those sorts of things. Um, that's so high nitrogen, you can't use that as a mulch. It's just too intense. Yeah. You can mix it with other things to create a mulch, but it would burn your roots. Um, and then you have things like, you know, the inoculating compost are ones that are really focused on the biology. Those are in those like vermicompost. That's a great inoculating compost. It has a lot of biology in it and it's really rich in nutrients. It's a great compost, but you can't really use that as a mulch either. One, it would be way too expensive. And two, there are studies that show that it's not necessarily going to be beneficial to your crop to put it straight into vermicompost. And then nutritional compost is your you're beautiful all around, like exactly what you want compost. Um, it has everything, the, the good balance, fertility, good microbes and all of the things. And then a mulching compost is something that's maybe heavily carbonaceous. That's kind of like a, you can imagine like a very decomposed wood chip or a very decomposed straw bale or hay bale or something that's like kind of mulchy. And that's what we're often talking about when we're talking about mulching composts. And that kind of needs to be paired with something that is, you know, it has still has to have that good nutritional compost under element under it or fertilizing compost or something to sort of feed the plant, but it covers the soil. It does the work of mulch. The one difficulty with that is you can't call a composter and say, I want a mulching compost, at least not yet. They may not know what you're talking about, but really? the idea, if you, that's, we're just not there yet, but this is something that the, the, there's always these divides between the different elements of an industry. So you have, you know, the suppliers, the seeds, the, the farmers, the composters, and trying to connect all those dots so that everybody's giving the customer, in our case, it would be the composter selling the farmer the right thing and what they actually need. It's good for them to understand how we look at these things. So maybe hopefully one day, well, you know, I've been in talks with uh, different composters about developing that language and developing some ideas around what those are in terms of their carbon to nitrogen ratio and all of those things. So, but yeah, I mean, for the moment you could call them though and say, this is kind of what I'm looking at. I want something that's going to fertilize my garden. I just have, I have a great, I have a great straw mulch. I just need something like a good high nitrogen compost. What do you got? Um, and that could be, you know, your fertilizing compost or, and you know, you could use that however. Cool. So much to talk about here. Um, we're talking to Jesse Frost. He has a new book called The um, Living Soil Handbook, The No-Till Grower's Guide to Ecological Market Growing. It's on Chelsea Green Press. Our friends there at Chelsea Green. And he knows what he's doing, folks. I mean, some of the chapters we're going to have to gloss over here is like turning over the beds, path management, fertility management, and transplanting and interplanting. I mean, your pictures of your farm are beautiful. I mean, the path management... It just blows me away at how cool everything looks because it's not just wood chips. You know, you're you're actually growing things in the past. <laughs> you want to just touch on that for a minute? Yeah, I've been really invested in this idea of living pathways, especially this season. I mean, over the last few seasons, I've been um, experimenting more and more with it. And I talk about it in the book uh, and we're going to have a lot more content about it at the no-till growers YouTube channel. So if you want to check that out, but the um, you know, the living pathway is essentially just a pathway that is growing a uh, cover crop. In this case, it is uh, perennial grasses. It's got some clover in it. Um, you could do a lot of different stuff with it, although I've found that nature kind of makes the ultimate indecision. You don't really get to choose necessarily what's going to stay there forever. It kind of just evolves as, as with nature's whim. So we've kind of just resigned to put in some things that we want and hope some of those succeed. But we keep it mowed and then we keep the pathways that are next to our permanent beds. Permanent beds are a big part of our system. We never move our beds. We keep, you know, the pathways edged just lightly with a, a few different tools. We're still trying to find the best one. We use a little hook hoe from Haas, but we keep them edged and that keeps the grass from creeping into the beds, but it still isn't so deep that it's going to 
disconnect necessarily those mycorrhizal fungi that the path is sort of feeding. So over the winter, we allow the paths to grow and we don't cut them as much as we do in the middle of the summer. And so it acts as like kind of a cover crop. It sort of, you know, starts photosynthesizing and feeding the soil, feeding the earthworms and all of the good things. And then when you put your plants in, in the spring, they can kind of latch onto some of those nutrients. In fact, some of the bigger carrots that I've been hauling out this year have been on the edges next to the living pathways. And that, so I'm doing it with a lot more bigger of diversity of crops this year than I've ever done. And I'm excited to see what some of those results are. It's very, it's, you know, it has some challenges. It still is a work in progress. There are a lot of people that are doing it all over the world and I'm excited to kind of develop it for our, for That's our awesome. area. Yeah. It's, it's so cool to look at it. Uh, folks, you go to Facebook, uh, rough draft farmstead and see it. It's pretty cool stuff. Uh, um, I'm impressed to tell you the truth. It's and it's, it's a, it's a beautiful layout, really, the way you, you arrange things. You're definitely, I've gotten more meticulous over the years. I used to be a little more haphazard, but it works better if you're more meticulous in the way you lay things out <laughs> and, you have, and, what, and take records and, you know, get serious. So, Absolutely, uh, yeah. yeah. But tell me about transplanting and interplanting a bit. You know, that's uh, something that is very interesting in the book. Yeah. So transplanting and interplanting, transplanting is this incredible ability. When I said that, you know, humans have this role in nature, our role is we're the stewards and we have something that nature can't often do on its own, which is we can take a living plant out of a greenhouse and put it in the soil. So an immediately photosynthesizing plant into bare soil, that is a skill that is something that we're capable of. And I think we should do that as much as possible. And the benefit is that we can also in so doing, you know, allow ourselves more time in that bed. So where if you put a squash seed, for instance, in the soil, you've got to wait several days for it to germinate, then you got to kind of keep it alive until it's large enough, and maybe you lose some. But if you put a transplant in there, you can have a maybe you do a run of radishes first, and then you put your squash in, and your radishes are come out. And then you you know, then you've already had two crops in that same bed, you have 100% success on your squash, because you only planted the ones that succeeded in your greenhouse, um, and that sort of thing. So that's an idea of just that's just maximum maximizing that space for you as a grower to get the most out of a small amount of space. But then also the interplanting idea is that you're trying to do this as diversely as possible. So a basic, I do both basic and advanced interplanting strategies in the book. And one of the, the basic strategy would be like a row of tomatoes and, you know, tomatoes take a long time to get going. So you want to maximize that space. And on the sides, maybe you plant a round of beets or a round of lettuce or uh, a round of radishes or turnips or something. You get a quick crop right off the sides. And then by the time those are out, uh, you have a, you know, your tomatoes have taken over the bed and you're, you know, that's going to be your crop for the next little while. So that's in, that's kind of a basic example of interplanting. And then I go into a lot of, you know, more technical ones, but there's so many ways to do it, to have more than one plant growing in a bed at the same time. And I think it's a great way to maximize your space. Yeah, I think, you know, being a fairly sophisticated backyard gardener, I never thought about that part of it. I always, you know, replanted, you know, I would plant another row of lettuce and keep it staggered. So I always had a good supply of lettuce. And, I, you know, I don't need tons of food, but I never thought about that right next to the plants while they're growing before they, they shade everything that you could actually use that space. And it's, you know, it's just reminds you that there's a lot, a lot of different ways of doing this. You know, one of the sections I really thought was interesting is, is chapter nine, where you say there's seven no-till crops from start to finish. So this I know is because you're talking to market gardeners, right? You're somebody that's going to sell produce to the local farm stand or have a local farm stand. Through trial and error, I actually ended up, this is what I grow. 
I grow carrots and garlic and mm. lettuce and arugula and sweet potatoes and beets and tomatoes. I grow a lot of tomatoes because I like slicers and I'm pretty well known for my tomatoes. But, you know, it's funny how I've X'd out a lot of other stuff that I tried and it didn't work. I mean, I'm, I'm not too fond of carrots because I get a lot of ugly carrots. <laughs> so, <laughs> but they're good. They're tasty. <laughs> Why did you choose these? Yeah, so um, these seven crops are my main crops. These are the crops that we grow that are our main, you know, uh, crops for market. But we, you know, we grow a lot of different things. But I also thought these were good, interesting takes on what no-till is. So for instance, the sweet potato, that's one that does take a little bit more disturbance to get it out of the soil. And so just kind of, I put in some strategies for how we do that, how we do it without plowing, how we get the soil, you know, that's the sweet potatoes to come out without plowing and how good soil kind of makes that easier. Cause you're, you know, by the end of the season, it's not capped over. It's not super crusty and hard and rocky. Like it can be in a dry season. It's still because of the mulches and because of the, you know, the very vibrant uh, sweet potato leaves, then you've got a nice cool soil that you can lift up the plant straight out of the ground and it, and it pulls the potatoes out of there. And same kind of idea with, carrots where, you know, I, I heard somebody say once that they, you know, they were arguing that anything could be tillage and that carrots could be tillage pulling a carrot. And when we pull carrots, we just pull the carrot out of the ground and put it in, you know, put a band on it and wash it and sell it to, and market. There's not much to it. But the other thing that's happening when you're doing that is that you're pulling a carrot out of the ground. You're, you know, it's a small amount of space. Is there a new space for gas exchange for the, for the next crop going in? And you've been photosynthesizing for 50 or 60, 70 days. So that's why I emphasize not conflating the two disturbance and tillage, because yes, the carrot is, you know, leaving some space in, in its wake. It did so much good to the soil that, you know, that it's, it's, it left so many good things in the soil that you can take advantage of for your next crop. And it's not so there's uh, and then things like summer lettuce, also technical stuff that people may not know how to manage. I thought that was a good one to add in there just in terms of how to manage lettuce in the middle of the summer, especially in our climate, because we're in 6B, we're in a very hot climate. So that can be really difficult. And yeah, I just kind of wanted a diversity of things that could be interesting and in how we do them in a no-till fashion. Yeah, you know, I found that I grow butternut squash on a trellis and it works really well. I mean, I get about 20 butternuts for my season and they last way into the winter you know so uh, you, do you grow any squashes on your property yes i love squash squash is actually one of my favorite crops i like i like summer squash and I, we grow a lot of winter squash as well i love that plant i think that this i think that the whole cucurbit family cu cucumbers can be kind of tough for me but i really love summer squash a lot just it's this massive carbon like you, the plant is massive the fruit can be massive the root systems are really substantial they go down something like four feet and they're really you know really expansive in either direction and it's just i just think that it's an underappreciated photosynthesizer and when it's doing well these plants get so large and i just i've always been really attracted to it I love winter squash as well. I love seeing it sprawl out and um, it can be kind of tough to, you know, manage the weeds and stuff. But as long as you've got that down, as long as you've got a good mulch down or, or you've got a good system for managing them, that those crops, I, those are, those are, there are several crops that I didn't put on that list of the, I, we stuck to seven 
Uh, there were several crops I wanted to add, but I, I uh, stuck to seven. And uh, yeah, if I could add one more, it would be summer squash. You know, we're talking to Jesse Frost. He's got a, a new book out there, The Living Soil Handbook, The No-Till Grower's Guide to Ecological Market Growing. And he's also a popular uh, podcaster with the No-Till Market Garden podcast. This book is a great resource, I believe. And it is also has some interesting appendixes uh, there the a cover crop use and termination guide which was mind-blowing to me i just more information i ever knew about these plants also you have a critical period of competition and pairings could you explain that briefly that was an, another interesting concept so that, yeah, so that one falls into the the sort of advanced intercropping techniques. And I think like one of the things you start to learn when you start to play around with intercropping is that certain pairings don't work and certain crops don't do well depending on when you pair them. So an example of that is carrots. Uh, carrots, I think, are a really good example because when you they have a very long critical period of weed control or critical period of competition. What I mean by that is if you plant something next to a carrot within the first, uh, I think it's 50 days, 40 days, it's a really long period. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's a pretty long period. Um, what happens is that the, the carrot actually senses that other plant through various means, um, and it starts to put its energy into growing a tall plant instead of a long root. And so the issue there is that you end up with really beautiful, robust greens and very small carrots. Kevin and so, <laughs> so figuring out how to manage that when you have those things that don't go right, that don't go well, um, looking through your that critical period can help to maybe shed some light on that's the same way with like understanding photosynthesis can help you shed light on why a plant's not doing well the basic, the critical period of weed control can help you spread light on why a pairing maybe, maybe didn't work. And, you know, I had issues with garlic that did that one year where I thought it was the most beautiful garlic I'd ever grown. It was so tall and I grew it with uh, Austrian winter peas right next to it. And I smashed the winter peas down later in the season as a mulch. And I was very excited about it. And I pulled the garlic and the garlic heads were the smallest we've grown in years. And wow. what had happened, what had resulted was that the pairing looked great. I thought they were sharing nitrogen or something, but the reality was, and the soil did great. Everything looked great, but the the reality was that the plant, the garlic plant, had to compete for sunlight, and so it put all of its energy into growing a tall plant and uh, not enough energy into growing a big bulb. It all makes sense. It all totally makes sense. So you know that that's the thing about farming, right? The frustration of the making the mistakes or the weather or whatever it may be. You know, it's being a farmer is a hard thing. Why do you do it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's something about being in the dirt. I think there's something that we want to be in the soil. We want to have that a relationship. I like having a relationship with organisms, and I think most people do. We have pets. We have sourdough starters. We have kimchi. Uh, we have kombucha. We have these relationships with organisms. And I think that soil is one of those. So be having that relationship with a soil organism is extremely important. And relationships, I think if anybody, I was thinking about this earlier, if anybody asked me what I thought the meaning of life is, I would say, I don't know, but I know that it has something to do with relationships. We know this to be true in terms of how, you know, done studies on what people really want at the end of life. And it's, um, uh, it often comes down to relationships. That's what's important to people. And I think that that same thing applies to what we do with our life. We have to find things that where we're having relationships with everything around us. And we're having more of those biological relationships where we have to care for something, be it an animal or uh, a sourdough starter or 
the garden. I think it's extremely rewarding and valuable. And if you can find ways to do it without toil, without cultivating all the time in the garden or whatever it is, um, finding ways to keep the soil covered so it does that work for you, it can be very satisfying. And it's one of those things that once you start doing it and you get the better you at it, you get the more fun it is and the more you want to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I think largely in modern society in the first world has gotten away from nature and 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 that's causing some of the problems that we're having. I mean, I think a lot of people came to an insight over the pandemic here that they they need to get back into their garden. A lot of people are gardening this now. A lot of people are going back to land or buying places out of the city. And from your perch, what do you see? Do you see a lot of people trying to do that kind of thing and trying your techniques and doing regenerative farming and, and selling their, their goods? Do you see any kind of trend there? Oh, there's an enormous movement towards small-scale farming right now. I've, I've talked about this a lot. Uh, there's we even did a video about it for our no-till growers YouTube channel, but the, the, the number of people that we're seeing uh, joining farming is really extraordinary, but also we're seeing it from a really interesting perspective. I mean, it's not just people backyard gardening. I know that has grown quite a lot too, but there are people actually getting into the business of farming. And we're seeing that because we're seeing how backed up various companies are who are selling irrigation, who are selling high tunnels and caterpillar tunnels and tools and seeds and all of the things in bulk and very big bulk, uh, BCS tractor, like walk behind tractors. We're seeing these people get really, really backed up because they just can't meet the demand. Part of it is is also there's a lot of manufacturing issues and, and supply chains, but some of that is there's no supply there. It's just it's just a matter of not having the not having the supply to meet the demand. And I'm excited because I think the majority of people who are getting into it are getting into it with this idea of regenerative farming, of being the steward to the soil. And that's a really great trend. That's a trend we desperately need you know, right now for the way that the climate is, is acting and we can repair it. I believe that we can repair it and we know the soil can, we can help repair the soil and it can do a lot of photosynthesis. One of its greatest attributes is it helps to cool our planet. It helps to give us oxygen and it helps to cool our planet. This would be a good place to throw my question in about warming of the planet. You, you, you're seeing it influence your decisions on what you're doing on the farm are you, as you're planning here. Are you looking at how the weather and these this new found heat that we're getting, it changes everything? You're going to see a lot more people moving to winter growing and moving out of summer growing. And um, that's going to be a pretty big trend over the next couple decades. And especially just in the next five, 10 years, you're going to hear that a lot that people just do winter farming. Um, and that's a really interesting trend. It's also something that I want to say is I, I feel as though personally, I've neglected this idea of climate change in my work. I don't talk a lot about the climate. I don't, uh, you know, really talk about how, where no-till sort of fits into that. And I think that's an oversight. I think that's a, the, I think that I should be talking more about that. I should be empowering people to realize that this is our job now, that we have the opportunity and the skills and the, the savoir-faire to fix the climate. We can do that. And um, I feel as though people should be proud of doing that, doing that work. It's important work and uh, we can rebalance things as long as we're working on the soil and letting the soil do what it does best. And that's photosynthesize and gather carbon and cool our planet. It's, uh, I think that we don't talk enough about it and I should, and I, I regret not talking more about it. 
So you, what about the industrial farming crowd? You know, these huge industries that have taken, you know, and they're also influenced by the fact that mostly like three or four chemical companies influence all this kind of industrial farming. Do you think they, they are finding uh, uh, the light here and, and changing their ways? you think you're going to see some big corporation who controls a lot of land switch over in, in some manner to these kind of techniques that you are working with? I think that one of the biggest issues with large scale commercial is that no, nobody wants to do it anymore. It's not fruitful. Uh, you, you know, you, you basically just go in debt year after year and you can barely pay your back. You're not making any money. And I think that as time goes on, that's, it's becoming harder and harder to find the people that actually want to do that work. But I also think there are a lot of people that are, you know, they are taking over their family farm and they're looking more at regenerative agriculture. Because like I said, when you have that relationship, it's more interesting, it's more engaging, it's more satisfying. And so people who've done great work on that, like John Kempf and others who've really brought people this idea of like, it's not just about soil microbes, it's not about talking about the science or talking about it in you know, any sort of spiritual way, this is going to improve your yields. This is going to put money in your pocket. It is really much more affordable and much better for your crop to not do the things that you've been doing that your, your extension agent or whoever it is, is telling you to do, or the people selling you chemicals. This is way more effective. It's way more effective to grow food based on what the soil needs instead of what the farmer needs. Stop true. We have to stop treating it like a growing medium. And I think people are coming around to that. And cool. the people who aren't are losing their, their, their kids are not wanting to take over the farm anymore. And that's hmm. a sad reality. You're listening to the thoughts of Jesse Frost. The new book is The Living Soil Handbook, The No-Till Grower's Guide to Ecological Market Farming. Tell them where you can get the book at your website and tell us about your uh, podcast too. Yeah, so you can go to notillgrowers.com and get the book there. When you purchase it from there, the proceeds go to helping us to do the work that we do. We try and keep everything free. So that's all of our videos. And we do several different podcasts. The podcast that I host is the No-Till Market Garden podcast. And it is in between seasons now, but we're going into the fourth season in the fall. And we also do several other podcasts. So check all that information at notillgrowers.com. Very cool. And you also can see you on Facebook too, right? Is that, is that named after the farm? Rough Draft Farmstead? Uh, uh, yes. Rough Draft Farmstead is the name of our farm. My wife and I uh, have run for several years and we have one full-time employee and uh, that's the name of our farm. I was, I'm a writer. She's a, a painter. And so Rough Draft sort of became fitting. We also moved farm several times. So it became extremely apropos after a while. <laughs> That's great. So any final thoughts for our listeners out there, you know, anything you want to leave them with that they should try to remember from you? Uh, yeah. I mean, just approach farming without and gardening, without a lot of dogma, try and see what your plants and what your property needs. And work with that and don't worry about what people call tillage or no tillage concentrate on what can improve your soil and your plant health because my soil is not the same as yours i guarantee it and your soil is not the same as even maybe somebody right down the road and you'll have to just approach it on your own means and i hope that my book will help you to do that i think it will it's a, a great little resource for sure the living soil handbook the no-till growers guide to ecological market growing by Jesse Frost. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kevin. This has been a blast. Digging in the dirt. Digging in the dirt. 
You have been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. To hear past programs anytime you want, visit the podcast section of WPKN.org. And now, all Digging in the Dirt interviews can be found on Spotify.